The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Sermon of the day, I call it preparing for crucifixion. So, God has just arranged time that history and years would be cyclical and we go through seasons and some of these seasons are repeated and for good reason and that's how our calendar year is. So once a year we come up across a holiday called Easter. Easter, that's coming up. So I thought it'd be good. We were able to do some topics on the Bible that were very important like what does God say about providence and we learned a lot together and a couple of other subjects. But now I thought we need to prepare for Easter uh, which is, I believe, how the King James refers to it, Easter. Uh, but we know what Easter means. Easter is really Resurrection Sunday, when Jesus willingly gave his life, died on the cross in fulfillment of scriptures, rose again from the dead, and uh, began, laid down the church, started the church, and reigns as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So Resurrection Sunday is what we prepare for. And depending upon... The exact day in the calendar year either lands in March or April, and it's in April this year. So I thought it would be good to prepare our hearts and our minds as we anticipate the true significance and meaning of Resurrection Sunday or what Easter is really about. It's not chocolate and Easter bunnies, even though I like the chocolate-covered peanut butter stuff, but that is the world's way of drowning out, clouding out the true message that is so such a scandal to sinners, this idea of Jesus Christ demanding that everyone follow him as Lord and Savior, repent of their sins, that he's the only way to heaven. That is an offensive message, but it is the message of the Bible. It's the message of the gospel, and it's what Easter or Resurrection Sunday is all about. And so it would be good as a church now to transition and start focusing, thinking, praying, meditating on the true significance of the most important season and historical event in the world. That is when Jesus was here 2,000 years ago and purposely gave his life as a sacrifice for sinners by dying on the cross and absorbing the wrath of God on that cross in fulfillment of Scripture. So today we're looking at Matthew 16. We will probably do this in two Sundays, which would be perfect timing, part one today of our four points here under preparing for crucifixion, pick up point number two next week. And then the week after that we have Palm Sunday. And the week after that, we have Resurrection Sunday. So that's where we're headed as we prepare for crucifixion. We prepare for the cross. And we are now in Matthew 16, starting at verse 13 to 26. Today, we'll probably just look at verses 13 to 20. So maybe the first two points on our handout. We'll see how far we get. And I chose this passage, Matthew 16. Kind of logically, I was trying to match it up with the chronology of Jesus' ministry, where we are right now. Okay, we're about a month from Easter, Resurrection Sunday. So if you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ that lasted longer than three years, his public ministry, and you take all four Gospels and you do a chronology of it, Matthew 16 takes us to the end of his ministry. We had the ministry of John the Baptist preparing the way. Then Jesus began his ministry there in Jerusalem and surrounding areas as detailed by the Gospel of John. And then he moved into his Galilean ministry, and that had many manifestations to it. And so he had about a a two-and-a-half-year public ministry, both in Jerusalem and in the Galilean area, which is where he grew up. And so now where we are in Matthew 16, and he's wrapping up and finishing his Galilean ministry. 
And so now at this point, Matthew 16, uh, it's less than a year when he will be betrayed and arrested and crucify and die. Which is actually the goal for which he came. The reason he came. Why did Jesus come? Why was he born 2,000 years ago? Why was he born? Why did he come? You get various answers. And there are many answers in the Bible, but they're all very specific. Jesus came to die for sinners. That's one of the main reasons. And so now we make a transition in his ministry. He's put in about two and a half years. He's gotten the word out. He's preached and gone all throughout pretty much Israel at that time. Uh, he's addressed all the, the Jewish leaders who needed to hear his message, which was consistent with the Old Testament. And they were experts of the Old Testament, so the message should have resonated in their scholarly ears. And then he also met with all the crowds and the multitudes who had been following him around for over two years as he did amazing signs and wonders that were unprecedented in history, raising people from the dead, healing every conceivable manner of sickness and disease, casting out demons like never seen before, uh, providing people with food from nothing, so, and on and on it went. So uh, his signs were proving that he was indeed unique. He was indeed the Messiah. He was the one promised in the Old Testament. And it didn't necessarily register in terms of the understanding of the people, but they were awed by it, fascinated by it, intrigued by it, enjoyed the privileges that came with it, and hence that's why they followed him around. But through all of this, as he address the jewish leaders and the jewish crowds for the most part the reaction he got was resistance and also wrong responses so from the crowds and the the masses that followed him originally look oh this is pretty good he's got crowds they're following him everywhere but early on jesus said oh, i don't you know what i don't trust people i don't trust men that's john chapter 2 because i know what is in the human heart i don't trust them So Jesus wasn't excited about the initial popular following that he had from the crowds and the masses and the headlines. And it proved to be true over time that they were dull of understanding. As a matter of fact, many of those who followed him early on ended up rejecting him along the way. Because the more they listened to him teach, his standards were too high. He was too convicting. He was too narrow-minded. He was too black and white. He talked about sin. And being selfless and denying self and... They didn't like that message. So many of his disciples bailed on him during the course of that two and a half year ministry. Many in the crowd publicly challenged him, tried to embarrass him. And that was the general reaction. That's why John says in his gospel in John chapter one, I think it's around verse 11. It says he came unto his own. Well, who's that? Jesus, the Jewish Messiah born in Israel, came to the Jews, came to the Israelites, confined his ministry to the Jews, preached to them, ministered to them, loved on them, prayed for them. And what was their response in the end? It says, he came to his own and his own received him not. That's God's diagnosis when all is said and done. And so that's what Jesus has been getting for two and a half years. It's just, uh, they were crass. They were materialistic. These are the crowds, the people. They were self-centered They liked the miracles, they liked the healing, they liked the free food. Gimme, gimme, gimme. And then Jesus just basically confronted them and said, you know what? You're an adulterous generation. You just want signs and miracles and you want to be fed. You're not even listening to what my message is or who I am. They, ooh, that set them off. And as a result, it says, many of his disciples followed him no more. 
So this is where we are in Matthew 16. Jesus is coming on off of investing all this time in ministry to the Jewish crowds and the Jewish people. And in the end, for the most part, the majority chose to follow him no more. Now, with respect to the Jewish leaders, like the Sadducees and the leaders of the Sanhedrin, especially down in Jerusalem, the Pharisees who were in charge of all of the synagogues all throughout Israel, the Sadducees who were in charge of the temple, the scribes who were in charge of the law, the Old Testament. They, it didn't take two and a half years for them to build up resistance to Jesus. It was pretty much immediate when they heard him teach. They were threatened by him the first time they heard him teach. They didn't know who he was. He didn't graduate from their schools. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He was an outsider. He spoke with an authority they never heard before. He talked about things they didn't want to talk about. They wanted to talk about traditions that appealed to man and to the appetites. He talked about the word of God that was convicting and pierced to the conscience. And he also claimed to be more than a man. He claimed to be equal with God the Father. And they considered that the worst conceivable sin. They called it blasphemy and it was worthy of death. So this, And he did things that they thought were blasphemous, blasphemous, like he did miracles on the Sabbath day. He would heal a blind man or heal someone on a Saturday. And they were incensed by that. So early on in his ministry, it says the Jews from that point on sought how they might try to kill him. And so as a result, then these are the Pharisees and the Jews down in Jerusalem. So every time he went to Jerusalem, it's kind of risky and he knew that. So he, the predominant amount of time in his ministry was in Galilee and to the Jews there. So he's invested two and a half years. That's the feedback and the end result that he's getting. Uh, literally, the Pharisees down in Jerusalem have been chasing him, and they're trying to kill him. And so Jesus is at a point now where he's going to take his disciples, and he realizes, you know what? I've, I've got to invest in just these 12 guys. We have reached that point now. I'm turning away from the Jewish leadership. I'm turning away from the crowds. And I'm going to invest the rest of my time primarily in my 12 disciples who will continue my ministry. And they will be the foundation of the church, God's new entity that will infiltrate the world with the gospel. And so that's this, that's why this chapter 16 is so important. It's, it's transitional in many ways. We're going to see that. Jesus has a new focus. And from now on, it's focusing on the cross. It's focusing on the church. It's focusing on his identity. It's focusing on the specific message, message uh, and mission of the apostles to be. So let's go ahead and look at that. Preparing for crucifixion. In other words, preparing for death. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, at the tail end of his ministry, with six months or less to go, is going to focus in a new way on his impending or his immediate death coming up in a way that he had never had before in his ministry. If you read the four Gospels together, uh, the first two and, a half minutes, uh, two and a half years of ministry, there are very few times where he gets very specific about his death. Here he gets explicit in terms of his death, even the process and how it's going to happen. And the apostles are going to hear that in a new way like never before, and there is a reaction to this new specific truth. He did begin his ministry by saying, destroy this temple. When he was in the temple publicly at a holiday speaking to the Jews destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again virtually nobody who heard that hundreds of people maybe thousands of people who heard him say that virtually none of them knew what he was talking about they all thought he was being literal when they heard it that he was talking about destroy this temple that Herod has beautified 
And in three days, I will raise it up again. And they're like, who is this guy? It wasn't until after he died, rose again from the dead and commissioned his apostles in hindsight that people understood what he was talking about, that it was a spiritual truth, that he was talking about, kill me, this temple, destroy this body of the son of God. And if you do in three days, I will raise it up again. So he did make an allusion to his death, but it was veiled. It was shadowed. They didn't comprehend it. They didn't understand it. That's about as specific as he got until this time, two and a half years into his ministry in this passage. That background is important because it makes sense when you see how his apostles react to this new emphasis upon his upcoming death. So we are preparing for crucifixion. And one of my main points throughout this passage, verses 13 to 26, in light of what happens here and what Jesus says in this text, A takeaway for us. A true disciple of Jesus. I don't know why you're here at church today. For some of you, I do. Some of you, I know that you know Jesus. You love Jesus. You want to be with the saints. You want to worship God. That's what God requires. That's obedient. It's a blessed thing. And you even have a desire to do it. So some of you, I know why you're here today. And some of you, I I, maybe I don't know you well at all. And I, I don't know why you're here at church. You may be here for another reason. Some of you might even be here because you feel you're under compulsion to be here out of somebody else's making you go. Maybe you feel guilty if you don't go. Maybe you're a teenager and your mommy and daddy are making you go to church. Way to go, mommy and daddy. Or in elementary school. Or maybe you came on your own and you're investigating, you're inquiring. I'm just checking into this religion and Bible and Christianity stuff. That's fine. That's a good thing, too. But takes us to our theme of the day, a true disciple of Jesus. What's a, disi- a true disciple? There were, I say true disciple because there were false disciples. There were masquerading disciples. There were pseudo-disciples. There were demon-possessed disciples, i.e. Judas. There were self-deceived disciples. That's someone who actually thinks they really are a disciple of Jesus, and they don't even real- realize or know that they aren't. To them, they are the most pitied of all, I think. It's not a premeditated uh, counterfeit on their part. They really think they are followers of Jesus. And they are the ones who will be most shocked and rudely awakened at the end of the age before the throne of Christ if they stay in that state where he says, yeah, you thought you were a disciple. I never knew you. Depart from me, you wicked, into eternal hell. So that's why... I'm contrasting that with a true disciple. By A true disciple is a Christian, someone who's truly born again. They have the Spirit of God living in them. They believe in the gospel properly. They bow the, na- the knee to Jesus as Lord. They know he's the only way to heaven. They understand that they are sinful and wicked, can't be saved apart from Christ and his death and resurrection. They know that God is the Father. He's the only way to heaven as well, along with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a disciple is. It's a son of God, a child of God, who's been adopted into God's family who's no longer uh, bowing the knee to Satan and in Satan's family, who has been redeemed and bought by Jesus Christ. This is a Christian, a born-again Christian. That's a true disciple. You've received eternal life. You will always have that eternal life. You can't lose that eternal life because it's eternal life. A true, that's what I mean by a true disciple. So a true disciple of Jesus must understand the meaning of Jesus' death. So if you're not a true disciple, if you're not a Christian, if you're not born again, there are prerequisites to becoming a Christian. That's the whole point of this passage in the sermon today. We want you to thoroughly understand 
just the basics of what God requires so that you might be a true disciple and adopted and welcomed into his spiritual family and secure in him forever. With the gift of eternal life, total forgiveness of sins, the indwelling Holy Spirit in this life, a future that is secure in him for all eternity in heaven and glory. That is the promise of being a true disciple in God's family. And we want you to know that and realize that and be secure in that and live and experience it. So a true disciple of Jesus Christ, there are prerequisites. Well, what is it? Well, the main thing is you've got to understand the meaning of Jesus' death. It's not believe in Jesus' death. That's not sufficient. That is not the gospel. Sometimes we hear that as the gospel to, that's presented to unbelievers. So are you willing to believe that Jesus died for you? Yes. Okay. Pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you died for me. Amen. That's not the gospel. It's part of the gospel. It's not the sufficient gospel. It's not the complete gospel. There has to be more than that. And and the main thing I think behind that is you need to understand, not just believe that Jesus died or that he died, quote, for you, but we need to understand the meaning of his death. And it is profound. And when I interview people, either for baptism or membership, I zero in on this. Whether they're seven years old inquiring about baptism or 70 years old inquiring about baptism or membership, we eventually get to tell me the gospel. What does it mean? How did you become a Christian? How do you become a Christian? Oh, well, Jesus died. Kate, why did Jesus die? What is the meaning of that death? Why did he have to die? Sometimes people like give me a blank stare and what do you mean? What's the meaning? Why did he have to die? What's the meaning of it? What is the significance of it? So this passage helps answer that question. So a true disciple of Jesus Christ must understand the meaning of Jesus' death. And I broke it down into four points here just in this narrative passage. And the first one here, number one, we're going to look at verses 13 to 17. Understanding, part of understanding the meaning of Jesus' death is we've got to understand who Jesus really is. You can't understand the meaning and significance of Jesus' death on the cross if at first you don't understand truly who Jesus is according to the Bible. This is basic. This is fundamental. It starts with understanding his divine person. It's not just understanding the person of Jesus. It's understanding his divine person. Jesus is a divine person. He's more than a man. That's the heart of what this text says. Understanding his divine person, he is the son of God, the son of God. Let's go ahead and look at it. Verse 13 to 17 and unpack this. There is so much here. It is so rich. There's so much we need to know and be reminded of. Look at verse 13. I already set the background of his ministry. It's towards the end of his ministry. His crucifixion is coming soon. He just fulfilled his ministry in Galilee. That's north of Judah around the sea of Galilee. He eventually had headquarters of ministry in Capernaum where Peter's house was and his mother's house. That's kind of where he ended up landing and was doing ministry basically in that area and had some interactions that were quite lively. And you can read before that of some things that he did there. And again, being challenged by the crowd and the leadership chasing him. So Jesus needs to get away. He needs to get away to some privacy, to some quiet with his disciples, with meaning his apostles. So Jesus takes his 12 apostles at this point, including Judas, the the devil, and they get away. Verse 13, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples. So we'll just stop there. He, so he's up by the sea of Galilee and now he's going to, okay, we need to get out of here. We did a lot of interaction with the crowds. We gave them free food. They responded the wrong way. They don't get it. They aren't understanding. They are confused. They are shallow. They're superficial. They're materialistic. All they want is to feed themselves. 
They aren't getting the message. I need to focus on my 12 apostles who are going to start the church and continue my ministry. I need to invest in them and prepare them, especially for the culmination of my ministry, which is my death, which I haven't been able to talk about yet. I have saved that for senior year of seminary training in his three years of training with his apostles. And that's what he's about to do. So he needs to get away and he does. And this this is strategic. In verse 13, it says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, where's that? Now, this is like. He's around Galilee, and that's where he was doing his ministry. Now he decides, I'm going to go in a place that maybe he had never been before with his 12 apostles, and that's just going about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Probably like on some Roman road that was laid with stones. It's, it's a, it was a two-day journey in their day. If they're walking, maybe got a camel or a mule carrying goods with them. Two-day journey. Kind of rugged. And as they're going down that Roman road, they're approaching... The furthest point of the land of Israel, which was the tribe of Dan. And near the tribe of Dan, as you get closer and closer, Debbie and I, my wife, we were able to go to Israel, courtesy of GBF, several years ago. And we did this. We went down this road and we were heading uh, towards going north, as far north as we could go to the area of Dan. And what you see there in the horizon is that massive 9,000 foot high mountain range called Mount Hermon. And it's got snow top peaks virtually almost year-round and so that's where we were going and that's where jesus is going so he's walking with his disciples they're getting closer to closer there's that beautiful mount Hermon mentioned in scripture many times historical events had happened there and he's taken up there and he's getting away from all these jews and the closer he gets to mount Hermon and caesarea philippi the closer he's getting to gentile territory pagan territory and that's exactly where he lands he lands in the city of caesarea philippi major city right there on the foot of Mount Hermon. It's a beautiful area. It's there today. It's a small area, so they know exactly where it is. It's an archaeological site, so there are things there that that tell us exactly where Caesarea Philippi was and probably the general area where Jesus was with his apostles. And one thing, when you sit down there that is prominent, it's beautiful, it's lush, are these massive, huge rocks right in front of your face. That's significant for what's going to happen here. So now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, so they they traveled two days. They're getting away from everybody. It's just the apostles. And now he's going to do some very important training and asking questions and preparation of these disciples. And this was the great, the ideal place to do it, away from the crowds, away from the threats, so they could focus on their ministry. And class begins, verse 13, and Jesus was asking his disciples. By the way, parallel passage is in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and also in Luke 9, 18. Luke 9 and Mark. You have to read all three of them together because each one of the accounts gives you some details that the others don't. So Mark 8 and Luke 9 give us information that Matthew doesn't. One of the things that Luke tells us about Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples a question. So it seems like he gets to town and then he starts asking away. That isn't what happened. Luke says, uh, when he gets to Caesarea Philippi, it says that while he was praying alone, what was the first thing Jesus did there? He got away, he sequestered himself, and he's praying to the Father. He's getting in tune with the Father. He's getting in tune with the Spirit. He has decisions that are historical life-changing that he needs to make and he needs to be in tune with the spirit led by the father do exactly what the father wants him to do and he does that through seeking god's will in prayer so he is alone he is praying alone he is undistracted he is done he's all prayed up 
He's confident that he's in the Father's will. Then and only then does he approach his 12 apostles and begins to ask them the most important question in the world. And what is it at the end of verse 13? He was asking his disciples, meaning he was asking them kind of over and over again, at least more than once. Here was his question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He kept asking, maybe because initially they were afraid to respond. And I, I can respect that. It can be intimidating when your teacher, the seminary professor, and you're in front, or your teacher in front of all the other students, and they ask a question. You're kind of afraid to answer because you know what? You might give the wrong answer and embarrass yourself. And that's probably what was going on here. But it is the most important question in the world. That's the question that we're all confronted with today. Uh, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The, the answer is amazing. Um, they said, well, some say, th- there's a, a prerequisite or understanding here that Jesus is talking about himself. Jesus is assuming that his apostles know that he is the Son of Man. That's a huge assumption. So you're a Christian. Many of you grew up in the church. You know your Bible. Question. Son of man. You are a Jew in Jesus's day. You were born a Jew, raised in the synagogue, fairly well educated. The only book you have that even matters is the Old Testament. You know it inside and out. It's the only thing you have. You don't have television. You don't have the Internet. You don't have anything else to do. Study the Old Testament if you're a Jew. That's why you know it inside and out. So when you hear the phrase son of man and you're a Jew in Jesus' day, you should think one and only one thing that should just jump out automatically. So when, when you say son of man, you think what? You, you automatically should think Daniel chapter 7. That's the only answer. Jesus' favorite title for himself was son of man. That's what he called himself. I am the son of man. The son of man does this. The son of man has no place to lay his head. That was his favorite reference for himself. Son of man. And then people began to realize and pick up on that. His disciples did, apparently. Oh, okay, wait, he keeps calling himself the Son of Man. Jesus must be claiming to be the Son of Man. Now, those Jews, Jesus' apostles, are thinking one thing initially. And the Jewish leaders are thinking one thing initially. And all the Jewish crowds are thinking one thing. And when somebody says Son of Man, they're thinking only one thing. It is Daniel chapter 7. How do I know that? Because the phrase Son of Man, the only place that occurs in the, occurs in the Old Testament is Daniel chapter 7. And it is profound. It is powerful. Let's look at it because it is so important. Because it is loaded. It was a specific person. It was a prophetic person. So I don't know if you passed that quiz or not this morning when I said, when I say son of man, you should think of one thing and one thing only. And that's Daniel chapter 7. Because that's the correct answer. If you were a Jew in Jesus' day. So you go into the Old Testament, go to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel, we're talking about 550 B.C. So this idea, the doctrine of the Son of Man, had not been revealed up until the days of Daniel. So imagine that. In the days of Abraham, he wasn't talking about the Son of Man. The days of King David, he wasn't talking about the Son of Man. Solomon wasn't talking about the Son of Man. The prophets uh, earlier that came earlier weren't talking about the Son of Man. Moses in the Pentateuch wasn't talking about the Son of Man. So it, it was a, quite a while before this revelation was given to God's people, Israel, and it's in Daniel chapter 7. It's very specific. And here is the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel the prophet has a vision. He basically sees uh, the kingdoms of the world, kingdom that was uh, going on in his day under Nebuchadnezzar, and then kingdoms that would follow Nebuchadnezzar. 
whether it was Rome, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then he was allowed to see a future kingdom that would arise out of the Roman Empire at the end of the age. And that's the vision he has in Daniel chapter 7. And so here's part of the vision. Very important, Daniel 7. Look at verse um, 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up. This is Daniel 7, 9. He's having a vision, direct revelation from God. And I was looking and I saw in the vision, this is direct revelation, until thrones were set up. Okay, there's thrones. That means authority, authoritative figures. There were thrones set up. Huh, interesting. And the ancient of days took his seat. Who is that? That is God. They weren't thinking God the Father because they didn't have that much revelation. They're thinking God, Yahweh, Elohim. The ancient of days. He's been around for all eternity. He was around before creation. That's why he's called the ancient of days. His vesture was white like... He is pure, sinless. The hair of his head was like pure wool. White. He is wise. His throne was ablaze with flames. Again, purity. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Everything around him is holy. Get this. Thousands upon thousands were attending Yahweh, the ancient of days, thousands upon thousands, myriads upon myriads were standing before him. Who is that? Well, at a minimum, it's angels. The multitude is so large, cannot be counted. At a minimum. What a glorious scene. The court sat, whatever that means, and the books were opened. And I don't know what books those were. Then Daniel kept looking because of the sound of uh, the boastful words of this coming figure who is called Antichrist, who comes at the end of the age. And look at verse 13. Here it is. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. There it is. There's the revelation of this term, the son of man. The son of man. And just in a few Short phrases, we learn the identity of the Son of Man and the characteristics about him. One like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, to Yahweh himself, and was presented before him. So he is unique. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is an awesome passage describing the Son of Man who is actually synonymous with the coming Messiah, which we know from the New Testament is Jesus himself. And just in these two verses, here's all that we learn about the identity of the Son of Man that the Jews were looking for at the time of the arrival of Christ. From this passage, we learn that the Son of Man is a person. He's not an ethereal ghost. It is an actual person. That's why many Jews said that the Son of Man would be the Messiah. Not all of them, but some of them believed that. Also from this context... From Daniel's point of view, the Messiah, the Son of Man was yet to come. It was an eschatological figure at the end of the age or coming in the future. So he's a person. He's yet to come. He has a special relation to the Father or to God. He comes right before, boldly before the throne of the Father. He's presented formally to the Ancient of Days. So he has a unique relationship with Yahweh. What else? He is given something. He is given dominion. That's all authority. Jesus said, I have all authority. He got it from the Father. He's given all authority. He Get this. He is given glory. God said, I alone deserve the glory. I share my glory with no one else. Can you think of a place in the Bible where God is sharing his glory with anybody and it's legitimate? No. God gives his glory to the Son 
of man. That is staggering. What else does he give him? A kingdom. The ancient of days, Yahweh, or God the Father, gives a kingdom to the Son of Man, which makes him what? A king. Not a king, the king. The king of kings. It goes on. Not only that, get this. He's a king of kings. Is he king over just Jerusalem? No. Is he king over just Israel? No. Is he king over that side of the world, the eastern world? No. It's universal in scope that all the peoples, nations, and in, in every language. See, he's a king of all people. King of So this was what the Jews didn't want to get. They didn't understand it. The Jewish leadership, they hated non-Jewish people. They were prejudiced as can be. The Gentiles were dirty. The Greeks were unclean. We alone know God. You can't be a part of it. That was their view. Their little enclave of one of the smallest nations of the world, Israel, that Yahweh and the coming Messiah will be a Messiah only for our small country, only our people, only if you are a purebred, you couldn't even be a Samaritan, the Jews only. That's who the Messiah belongs to. No, that is not in the Bible, not even in the Old Testament. He is a king of the whole earth, of all people, of all nations, of every people, every language. He's a universal king. That's why the woman at the well, the Samaritan half-breed who wasn't qualified, said after her interactions with Jesus in John 4, this is indeed the savior of the world. The world. What else did we learn about the Son of Man? Oh, that he needs to be served. Oh, wow. That they might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Oh, okay, he's not just a king. He's not just a universal king. He's an eternal king. Only God, only deity, only God can be eternal like this. He's an eternal king. It will not pass away. It is indestructible. It will be here forever. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He is all powerful. He is omnipotent. He is almighty. This is the son of man. The son of man is going to be more than just a man. This is what the Jews should have known. This is what the Pharisees should have known. It's in their Bible. And they didn't get it. So all these characteristics and attributes about the son of man and who he is. And he is glorious and unique in his relationship with Yahweh. He is deity himself. The eternal king of kings, all powerful. And the first time they see Jesus talking, he refers to himself as the son of man. You can see why they reacted. Accusing him of blasphemy. That's when we get to John chapter 12, around verse 45. Towards the end of his ministry, it says, after teaching for two and a half years, the crowds, the crowds, it says twice, the crowds. He's in in and near Jerusalem. It's a holiday. It's Passover. He's teaching publicly. He says, I must be lifted up, a reference to his death. And then the crowd spoke out almost in unison and said, wait a minute. We know that the Messiah must come and remain. But you are talking about being lifted up and dying. That's not in the Old Testament. The Messiah doesn't come and die. And then they finish off their interrogation with, who is this son of man? Point being, they didn't fully understand the Old Testament teaching about who the son of man was. That's what Jesus is going to try to relate to his disciples here. And that's why he asked this question. Who do people say that the son of man is? Notice Jesus didn't say, who do people say that Jesus is? He didn't say that. He didn't say, who do people say that? I am, although that Mark and Luke say, I, the son of man, but the emphasis is on who do people say that the son of man is, meaning me. And the apostles understood that. Oh, okay. Um, Who do people say the son of man is? Here was the answer, verse 14. And they said, the apostles responded, and they said, well, some of the Jews, we've heard, uh, believe that 
the son of man is John the Baptist. And Herod once proclaimed that Jesus, huh, maybe he's John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. So at a minimum, Herod believed that. Well, some say that the son of man is John the Baptist. Others say that the son of man is Elijah because uh, Malachi predicted that Elijah would come again, a second Elijah. Others say that uh, Jeremiah is the son of man. Jeremiah come back from the dead. That was a, a legend believed by the Jews. And then uh, the last one is, and others say that one of the prophets come back from the dead, Luke tells us, come back from the dead. Maybe Remember Moses, I think it's in uh, Deuteronomy 18, he predicted that the coming great prophet would come. Maybe that's what they were thinking. So, you know what? Those are all wrong answers. Those are all, you know, wonderful. John the Baptist was a humble man of God. Admiral Elijah, faithful prophet. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, a servant of God. Other prophets, all blessed with the hand of God. Those are good men, godly men, saved men. But those are all inadequate answers. They're all actually wrong, distorted, and really blasphemous answers. Because when you ask the question, who is Jesus? And you give an answer that, well, he was just a great man. No, that's not the sufficient answer. Well, he was a good Bible teacher. No, that's not good enough. Well, he was a great rabbi. No, that's not good enough. Well, he was one of 28 prophets, says Islam. No, that's not a sufficient answer. That is not adequate. Jesus doesn't accept that answer. Scripture condemns those answers. Who is Jesus? It's the most important question that every human soul needs to answer. Who is Jesus? We need to understand it specifically, fully. God only accepts one answer. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, is more than a person. So then he changes his questions. Verse 14, and they said, uh, or verse 15, notice the transition. Who do they say that the Son of Man is? And now he gets personal, connecting the dots. Well, who do, who do you say that I am? The Son of Man. Those are all the wrong answers of people you're commiserating with and hearing in the streets and the crowds. But who do you, the apostles who've been with me for two and a half years that I've been investing in, living with, training, sacrificing for, providing for, following me, modeling for you, teaching for you, preparing you. There's got to be a difference. Who do you say that I am? Well, they got the answer right. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Man, what an answer. That was the correct answer. That is profound. You know, if you read the four Gospels together, nowhere that I could find where Jesus explicitly tells Peter and the apostles, oh, by the way, I am the son of man from Daniel chapter 7, and by the way, I am the son of the living God. That hadn't been taught to its fullness in seminary yet. This was reserved for their senior graduating year. And before Jesus could even teach them that, Peter spits it out. This was an intuition. This was not, he didn't find this in the Old Testament. By the way, you're not going to find that phrase. Not only is the son of God rarely found in the Old Testament. I mean, son of God, by the way, Ezekiel was called son of God, uh, small s, small g, or capital G, but small s, totally different. But in terms of the Messiah, one time Daniel chapter seven, son of God. If you do a search in the Old Testament for the phrase son of God, you're going to have a hard time finding that as well. The son of God. There's God's son, Psalm two, but son of God, you virtually can't find it in the Old Testament either. And Jesus revealed himself as the son of God as well. And people were confused about that term and what it means, just as people are today. And notice, he says, who do people say the son of man is? And his answer is the son of God. 
He also says the Christ. That was the correct answer. Daniel chapter 7 talks about the Son of Man, and the way it describes him, he is describing him. Here is the coming Messiah. Christ means Messiah. They're, they mean the same thing. Christ is Greek. Messiah is Old Testament Hebrew. It means the anointed one. The anointed one of God, the anointed one of Yahweh, the anointed Savior who is yet to come, the anointed holy divine king who is yet to come. That's who the anointed one was. And there are passages from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Malachi describing and giving features of the coming Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the Mashiach. So there's context. They know they're Jews. The son of man is the Messiah. And Peter got it right. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And the combination of these two phrases, Christ meant something very specific to the Jews and son of God in this day at this time meant something very specific to the Jews as well. Messiah Christ emphasized his humanity. Because humans were designated and anointed with oil in the Old Testament by God. God would anoint prophets, priests, and kings to serve and represent him. That's what Jesus as Christ means. He is the greatest, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Greater than any other. So that's what that meant. He, he will be human. Not only that, he will be divine, the son of God. When you hear the phrase the son of God in the Bible, especially the gospel of John, you should think one thing. When you hear son of God, you should think deity. That's what it means. Deity. I grew up Catholic for 19 years. Didn't do a whole lot of study in the Bible. Got religion, got some man-made religion. Every once in a while, I got a Bible story here and there. And I was taught early on to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. But for 18, 19 years, that was never actually explained to me. I never knew what it meant. He's the Son of God. He was somehow birthed from God. But all, all it meant to me was he was just a pretty much a normal human being who was special. He was kind of a unique. He was human. And he was only human. He had a special relationship with God the Father somehow by virtue of his calling and the task that he was called to do. But that's about it. Then I read the Bible on my own at age 19, and then I realize, wow, especially in the Gospel of John, Son of God doesn't mean that. Son of God means primarily one thing. He is deity. He is the exact image of the Father in terms of deity, essence, nature, eternality, the attributes of God. Yes, incarnated in a human body, but Son of God means divine. Deity, almighty God, worthy of worship. That is what son of God means. So what is Peter declaring? The most important thing about the gospel, and that is who is Jesus Christ? He is God's Messiah, anointed prophet, priest, and king, who is a hundred percent man, sinless man, perfect man, eternal man from this point forward in his body. Not only was he a human being, he was deity. He was the son of God. So there it is. The God man in Peter's phrase. This is new revelation. Uh, like I said, Peter wasn't trained in this. He didn't learn this from the Old Testament. It just blurted out of his mouth. And that's why Jesus responds in verse 17. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Man, good answer, Peter. Way to go. And see all these other 11 apostles saying anything. Cowards, sissies, didn't want to get a wrong answer. Peter gives the right answer, the most profound answer that could be given. The true identity of Jesus Christ. Verse 17, Jesus said to him, blessed are you. Peter, man, you are blessed. You're blessed for several reasons. You're blessed beyond 
what you are even able to comprehend your blessings, Peter. You are blessed by God. You have favor from God. You have favor from Yahweh in so many ways. Number one, Peter, you are blessed because God the Father, you didn't come up with that answer on your own. God the Father from heaven gave you that answer. He revealed divine revelation through you. To all of us and the apostles here, to your brothers. Do you know that Peter was called as an apostle before this? This is kind of interesting that apostleship is listed as one of the new testament spiritual gifts you can see it in first corinthians 12 it's listed as a spiritual gift and also in ephesians chapter 4 well what was the main abilities of an apostle the ability to be a conduit of divine revelation now peter had already been called as an apostle before this event but prior to this we don't know if peter ever saying anything that was divine revelation This could be the first time that Peter, as an apostle, spoke divine revelation. And none of the other apostles that we know of up to this point, at least it hadn't been revealed, had spoken divine revelation. This was the beginning of his ministry. Peter, you know what? You got it right, man. You didn't say something stupid that people are going to talk about you for 2,000 years and saying you're the apostle with the, uh, you know, foot-shaped mouth and just mock Peter forever. But you got it right. Divine revelation. Way to go, Peter. You are blessed. God chose to spoke through you, the finite fallen sinner that you are. God, the Father's using you to communicate the greatest truth of all. So Peter was blessed as a result. God decided to use Peter of all those 12 guys. That's blessed. Not only that, how is Peter blessed? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. He's, by the way, he calls him Simon, not Peter, Simon, son of Jonah. He's reminding him that you're just a man. You're just a, a lowly creation of a fallen sinner. That's why I'm calling you Simon, son of Jonah. You are nothing more than the offspring of your sinful dad. And yet God the Father, Yahweh, chose to spoke the greatest divine truth through your mouth. There is a harbinger, a precursor of what your ministry is going to entail. Isn't that awesome? What a blessing. I'm going to use you, Peter, despite your idiosyncrasies, shortcomings, sin, compromise, fear. Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, it's, it's not of human source. My Father in heaven has revealed it to you. That is divine revelation. And then Peter would go on to be um, blessed in that Peter would be the first. When Jesus started his church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, who was allowed to give the first sermon on the birthday of the church? It was the apostle Peter. And you had thousands of Jewish men who were pierced to the heart and said to Peter, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said, believe and repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And thousands were baptized on that day. So what a privilege. Peter was the first one to really open the gates of the gospel to all those Jews the day that the church began. Peter was blessed. Peter was blessed to be the head of the churches that got established in Jerusalem. Peter was blessed to be an apostle. Peter was blessed to have divine revelation from that point on. Peter was blessed to be able to do miracles on behalf of Christ early on in the church. Peter was blessed to help lay the foundation of the church. Peter was blessed to write uh, new epistles and add divine revelation to the Bible, which we are blessed by. Peter was blessed a little later on in his ministry in Acts chapter 10 to be the first, really, to open up the gates of the truth and the gospel to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10 and Cornelius and and that whole household of Gentiles who got saved and were added to the church. Peter was blessed. Blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah. Let's go on to point number two. So understanding his divine person is a prerequisite to becoming a Christian. You've got to know who Jesus is. He is the God-man. 
He is the living God. He is the eternal one. He is the, the creator. He is uncreated. He has been around forever. He's equal with the Father and equal with the Spirit. He is the ultimate and only judge, by the way, because the Father's delegated all judgment to Jesus. When you die, it doesn't matter who you are today. When you die, at some point, you will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who will render a verdict about your eternal soul. And you will be consigned either to hell forever or to heaven and bliss with the Father. And there's only one condition. It was, what did you believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ? What did you believe about Jesus? That's the decision that you're confronted with and need to make. Did you believe the right thing about the Lord Jesus Christ and bow the knee to him and understand the fullness of his gospel? So we've got to understand his divine person. And the next thing we need to understand is his redeeming purpose. 18 through 20, let's just go ahead and read those. Jesus goes on about the blessed Peter. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So really, this 18 and 19 just picks up on what I just laid down about Peter, how he is blessed. Uh, Peter would be blessed, Jesus said, which I already alluded to. He says, Peter, your name, I, I changed your name from Simon to Peter, and Peter means rock, really little stone. That was intended to be a blessing, a stone, stability, strength. But it's little stone, Petros. Peter, you're going to be blessed. Uh, I also say to you that you are Peter, you're a stone, and upon this rock, Petra, it's a different Greek word, big stone. Peter, you're little stone. But there's a bigger stone than you, Peter. It's called this rock. It's a massive rock. It's different from you, Peter. You're a little stone. This rock, in verse 18, is a big stone, a massive stone, a massive rock, an unmovable rock. And it's not you, Peter. You're just a little stone. And upon this rock, this massive stone, different from you, Peter, I, the Lord Jesus Christ, will build my church. So Jesus was promising, Peter, you're going to be blessed because I'm going to build the church on me, the Messiah, and you're going to be a part of it, Peter. You're going to help lay the foundation of the church along with the other apostles. And the gates of Hades, and when you think, when you hear Hades, you should think death or the grave or the netherworld. Not this life, but the next life. Hades used about 11 times in the New Testament, and it means death, the grave, the afterlife, leaving this world into death, and usually with a nuance on punishment with fire, not eternal hell, but a place of darkness and temporary punishment for those who rejected Christ. Hades will be eventually thrown into the lake of fire, which is eternal hell. But basically, you should think death, that uh, I'm going to build my church, Jesus said. It's going to be a unique entity, the church of Christ. It began on Pentecost. It is eternal. I will be the king of it. It will overpower death. Hades or death is Satan's greatest weapon. I'm going to overcome death because I am the Messiah. And if you're a part of the church, you will overcome death. And the way you overcome death is with life. And that's resurrection life. And Jesus Christ is basically saying here, yes, I'm going to die and you're going to die. But when I die, I will overcome death by resurrection. And if you believe in me, you will overcome death. We will all are going to die. But you can overcome death by resurrection only if you believe in me, only if you follow me, only if you're a part of my church, which I am going to build. That's what he's saying. And Peter, you know what? You're going to be a part of it. 
I'm going to give you authority as the head apostle. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. While, G, while Peter was on earth, he would have authority from heaven to lead the church as one of the 12 apostles. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall been, have been loosed in heaven. So Peter and the apostles would speak with divine revelation as apostles. And what they say represents divine truth already issued by God up in heaven. That's a reference to their divine authority delegated from God, but also divine revelation, much of which we have now written in our scriptures as a gift to us. Peter, you are blessed. Then verse 20. Then Jesus warned the disciples, the 12 apostles there, that they should not... Okay, they just learned this new great truth. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And they're all celebrating. They are excited. Man, Peter, he's got all this authority right on. We're buddies with Peter. So maybe we can get some of that authority. Woohoo! Let's go out and do it. Yes. Let us go. And they're just ready to go. And then Jesus says, yeah, okay. Ready. Verse 20. Okay, guys, go out and do it. Wait. No, he didn't say that. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. What? We've got the truth. We finally got the message. Let us go. Let us do the work. Let's go preach for Jesus. He said, no. As a matter of fact, I don't want you telling anybody. Nobody. That's weird. That's odd. That's hard to explain. Why is that? Come back next week. We'll answer the question. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And we're going to have our benevolence offering. So pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day and... Thank you for the truth of Scripture. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being the teacher of divine truth found in Scripture, allowing us to understand it. And God, we pray that you would use the Holy Spirit to not just understand it, but to believe it, to live by it, and allow it to calm our hearts and to produce the fruits of the Spirit in our lives that we wouldn't forget it so easily, we would remember it. What a blessing. Thank you for the reminder of who you are. That's the most important question in the world, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. There is no salvation apart from knowing you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for those of us whom you have saved by your grace through the gospel, and we pray for those who don't know you yet some who may be seeking you, some who don't have enough information yet, some who are under conviction, some God, who are running from you. God, be gracious. Invade their life. We commit their souls to you. We thank you for this time. We commit it to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650 650- Six three zero 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 nine.